out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Bevis Frond, because I spoke to the main man, Nick Solomon, to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway... This is the interview. He's got a new, or they've got a new album out, um, which came out a couple of years ago on Fire Records that, um, yes, we discuss in great detail. So you'll find out that, plus Nick's early life, and much, much more. But anyway, after several minutes of casual chat that we got edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Nick, tell us more about your early formative years. It's over to you. I kind of grew up with just with, it was just me and my mum. My, my my dad wasn't around, and uh, my mum was uh, kind of really musical. She played piano, and she was really into music. So there was always music in the flat, you know, where I grew up. And we, you know, she she liked all kinds of stuff, you know, classical and Sinatra and all the stuff. And this would be because I was born in '53, so this would be like in the '50s when I was a little boy. And uh, she was you know, starting to try and teach me how to play piano when I was about four or five. But, you know, I never really wanted to play piano because I was, I was already kind of interested in pop music and I wanted to learn guitar. So yes. this, was, this would be in the kind of late 50s. So I was kind of... The first record that I went out and got for myself with was Johnny Duncan and the Blue Grass Boys doing more and more, which was about 1958 or something like that. Johnny Duncan, I have to say, that is obscure. He was, he was an American who lived in Britain, and it was, it was kind of British rock and roll with a kind of American rockabilly twist to it because he was a kind of, he's a, you know, American guy who lived over here. But, um, you know, and then I was into all kind of the shadows and stuff when I was growing. I started playing guitar when I was about seven, and the shadows were just taken off in that 1960. They were the kind of big, biggest thing, really, with Cliff and the Shads. I much preferred the Shadows, so I had all the Shadows records. But it really, I suppose, it really changed when the Beatles came along, and you know that just kind of changed everything. Really, I was kind of yes. swept along with all that, and the, then all the, the kind of British beat bands, you know, the Kinks and the Who and the Stones, and you know all that kind of stuff. I just loved all that, and then I suppose. A real sea change would have been when I was about 13 and I saw Jimi Hendrix on Ready, Steady, Go and it just kind of, you know, that, well, you know, that was it, really. I was I think my course was set. Yes, know. absolutely. Did you, I mean, did you have any brothers or sisters? You know, did you have... No. Any, so it was you, you and your mum, sort of... Just me and my mum, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Was she... I mean, she sounds... She wasn't probably a bohemian kind of beatnik, but was she quite... She wasn't, no. But was she a bit into? Was she aware of sort of modern culture? Oh and... yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, she was, she was great like that. She was, she was kind of a bit unusual for a, a mum in the fifties in that she, you know, she liked all the kind of classical and the, the kind of stuff like Sinatra and the singers and all that. But she really liked the kind of, you know, pop music as well. So I, I was very fortunate that you know when I was a little kid, you know, we'd go to the kind of see. You know, I remember seeing Cliff in the Shadows with my mum and Frankie Vaughan and people like that she used to take me to. And uh, she did actually, for my, I think it was my 11th Christmas present, she took me to 1964, Christmas 64, I would have been 10, I think. Mm. She took me to see uh, the Beatles. At, at, or I was maybe at 10 or 11, I can't remember whether it was 63 or 64, but uh, she took me to see the Beatles at Hammersmith for my Christmas present, you know. Wow. That is quite so cool. She was pretty. She was pretty good like that. <laughs> she was. She liked. She liked it all, you know. And I, I remember she kind of. She introduced me to the door. Not introduced me personally, but she kind of <laughs> told me about the doors. Yes. I that when I was about sixteen, and I. I oh no, I wasn't sixteen. What would I have been? Fourteen. Yeah. And she. Um, I remember she told me that she'd been around to see a friend of hers who had teenage sons, and she said, "Oh, they were playing a record by a group called the Doors. You'd really like them." So I wrote it down and I thought Doors is such a boring name <laughs> that it has to be spelt differently. So I thought it was spelt, I kind of spelt it D-A-W-S because I thought it can't be just the Doors. That's such a terribly boring name. But it was. 
Yes, it, it was literally the dear old doors of perception, wasn't it? Really? Well, I didn't realise that at first. No, probably not. I just thought it was the doors. I thought they can't call a psychedelic group the doors. I mean, that's just such a useless name. But then I realised a bit later that that's what it was. So when you hit 17, that was 1970. So yeah. did you, I mean, at that stage, you would have already been kind of aware that there was like the Beatles had obviously broken up and, you know, Jimmy... Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Hendrix, Jim Morrison, yeah. Janis Joplin had all sort of died in the same yeah. year. Did it feel a little bit, because it's interesting how we all, as we get older, we all sort of sound like our parents or even worse, older parents or grandparents. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, did, did, did you think, oh, my God, I, I missed it all? Or, or were you still no, sort of... No, no, not at all, no. I, I mean, I was devastated when Hendrix died, I must admit. You know, that was... Because I, I never, I got so close to seeing him, and I never actually did. And he was like my favourite act of all time. And I kind of went. To, I remember when he played at the Albert Hall, and I didn't, couldn't afford a ticket. And I went down there and tried to bunk in, and couldn't. Got chased out by security guards. And then I went to the Isle of Wight festival, which he played at. And me and my mate Ray ran out of money, and so we left a bit early and missed Hendrix again. <laughs> And we made a solemn promise when we were making our way home from the Isle of Wight. We, if next time he plays, whatever, wherever it is in the UK, we'll go. We'll do and it. Of course, and yes. of course he didn't, you know. I know, that's so tricky. And I remember we, me, and, me and Ray were going to the Lyceum to see uh, the Kinks on the night that he died. Because we were meeting at Baker Street Station and there was a hoarding saying pop star dies and I looked at the evening standard and went oh my god it's Hendrix you know yes so, so that was that I was when the Beatles broke up I yeah that wasn't really too traumatic or anything because they were already kind of fractured a bit you know and you know let it be you great and you know they'd already kind of made kind of you know moves towards doing their own stuff you know so you know and you you kind of you know, I was into what was going on in 1970 as well. You know, there were new bands turning up and it was all still quite exciting, you know, with the kind of, as psych was kind of changing into prog. And initially I thought it was great. But then by about 71, 72, I was thinking, this is shit. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I like... started collecting records about 1972 and going out and buying all the stuff I'd missed in the 60s, you know. Right. Uh, and I was never a, a prog fan at all. You know, mm. kind of, yes, and Genesis and all that stuff. I didn't, I didn't, I never liked it because it, I just thought it was kind of, I don't know, it was a, like, I, like I always call it the, the polo of rock, you know, that you, you had to have a stable and a horse before you could play, you know. And with prog, you needed five mellotrons, a pantechnic and a gong, you know, and it, you know, that, the thing that had turned me on to music when I was a little boy was that it was something that, you know, like football, it was some, one of those things that your average kid, if he had any ability or something, could actually try and do. Yes. And then when prog came along, you think, ah, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that because I can't afford a Hammond B3 and a Leslie Speaker and a Mellotron and a twin-necked guitar. And, you know, it's out of my league. And it wasn't really until punk started that I kind of thought, ah, oh, good, I'm back in with a chance. Now, you know. <laughs> Did you, because um, you were that age then, you would have seen this sort of the rise of glam, but you'd already, as a young person, had sort of had your, the 60s period. Did What did glam look like to you at that time? To me, well, it looked like a, I mean, if you want to, I'm, I was never a fan, I've got to say, of glam, but it, to me, I mean, I could tell that, you know, if you were a bit younger than me, because when glam was in its pomp, I was probably about 19 something like that, 72, something like that. And for me, it was kind of, you know, I, I, I thought it was a bit stupid, it was a bit silly, you know. Yes. It was kind of, you know, but it was a really, well, what I looked at, because I'd been kind of into music all through the 60s, even when I was a little kid, you know, I was really into, you know, what was in the charts and, oh, Bobby V's not at number one anymore, you know, it's Craig Douglas's, you know, and all that kind of shit. And... um so it just looked to me like a bunch of old gits slapping on the makeup and having another chance at trying to get a hit, you know? Yes, dear old So Kenny. you had Alvin Stardust, you had Slade, you had Mark Bolan, you had Bowie, you know, Mud, Sweet. They'd all been around for fucking years, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And never got anywhere. And finally, another, this kind of wave came along and gave, gave them another chance. Gary Glitter, you know, all of them. They're all 
Alwyn Stardust, you know, they've all been around for, you know, 10 years or so trying to get somewhere. And suddenly, you know, it was the doors opened again, a bit like, I suppose, a bit like when punk happened, you know, and then you got all people like the Stranglers and stuff who had their chance again, you know, and a lot of people who've been into kind of Hawkwind suddenly pretended they didn't like Hawkwind, you know. <laughs> and also, so, yeah, they're, 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 well, there was a lot of backtracking in punk. But before that, I mean, because luckily Bowie was my first single and my first love. Oh, with Bowie Sp- was absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's that's the thing. I love Bowie. I thought he was, you know, I, I remember seeing him in, oh, what, about 19, just about, when, about 70, 71, something like that. When I went to see, come hit, so here you go, this is how things get reversed. I went to the Roundhouse to see Argent. Right, yes. And the bill was, bottom of the bill was David Bowie, second on the bill was Elton John, and headlining were Argent. Nice. Uh, and about a year later, it would have been the complete opposite <laughs> way around, you know? I know. Well, when, once Elton brought out Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was probably one of those, I don't know, was it back 73, wasn't it, really? Then? Well, he Boy. was already huge, wasn't he? I mean, you know, Tumbleweed Connection really... He was kicking it off by then, you know. Yes, he'd already done quite a few of his big singles. Yeah, I mean, he was great, though. I mean, you know, Bowie and Elton John. I mean, once again, you know, they'd been around a long time, these guys, you know, finally cracked it. But they were super talented, you know. I mean, Bowie, you know, what a songwriter, you know. Great singer, great songwriter. You know, Elton John, well, you know, when I saw him live, I was knocked out how good he was. A great pianist, great singer. Yes. You know? Absolutely, him and Bernie, him and Bernie. Because actually, the interesting thing with Bowie, though, because I'm, I'm just keeping on that point, I mean, then sort of with, with my that, that sort of first love and first whatever, yeah, just first love, really. Um, yeah, then going back and looking at his 60s work and thinking, God, that is really strange. You know, you had all this other stuff coming out, like The Doors and Hendrix and Jim Morrison, Jim, Jefferson Airplane, and then Bowie was making these rather peculiar beat, folky things. which kind of a bit Newley-esque. Newley-esque, to be kind. It was kind. Kind of like Anthony Newley on acid or something, you know. But, the, and it was a bit... but truly forgettable and terrible, really, even though I do love the man. But but did you did you were you aware of Bowie during that kind yeah, of... Yeah, of course, pe- yeah. Right, OK. I was just curious. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, was, I started going to the marquee and stuff with my mates when I was about 15. So, you know, you, you were aware of who was going on. I, you know, I read Melody Maker and NME every week and... You know, I was spent my life either playing football or or going to record shops and seeing band or seeing bands or trying to get off with girls. I mean, that was my life at you know fifteen. That's all you want to do. Sixteen, seventeen. Uh, I was only interested in kind of music, girls, and football. You know, that was it really. I quite like architecture, but I wasn't that bothered about it then. Yes, but you're a, Q, a QPR fan, that fan. Aren't yeah, you? I know. Terrible mistake when I was eight years old. But it was, yeah. But then I do remember a few years <laughs> later the golden period where they had, you know, an amazing team wow. came second and yeah, should have won it. And they had that, would, that would never have happened. I mean, I'm still bitter about that. I'm not surprised. Still, it was it was a complete stitch up that was. That QPR needed. Ah, oh, it was QPR and Liverpool were one point behind QPR, but they they played the last game of the season on staggered days. So QPR played their last game of the season a day before Liverpool did. So Liverpool knew what they had to do. Yes, it was. Um, it was and really. It was, it was terribly unfair. You think, well, bloody hell, that's given Liverpool such an advantage. Because if they didn't kick off at the same time, you know, and it's like, wow, no one knows who's going to do what. I mean, Liverpool looked at it and said, right, we've got to win this one. We've got to win it by, you know. And even though they struggled, Liverpool, they nicked it in the end and QPR came second, which is, you know, I don't think that would have happened now. No, God, Stan Bowles. But, le- you know, they get over it, you know, what is it, 40 years ago or something, you know. But, you know, you still have to look at YouTube and watch some of his play and think, what a left foot. Oh, there's not much of... QPR on YouTube, you know, a little bit of Stan Bowles, not a lot, you know, they, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm proud of being a QPR supporter, but it hasn't been a, a, a journey full of happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, there you go. I know it's a bit sad, isn't it, really? But yes, but then, because obviously in the 70s, there was the glam period, there was that prog, then we had heavy metal, and then sort of punk started to appear. Did people like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart suddenly, or not suddenly, but sort of, did they creep into your consciousness at all? Well, yeah, of course. 
Um, I love beef art. I remember hearing Safer's Milk in a shop in Swiss Cottage called Manzi's with me and my mate, me and my friend Kev. Because me, me and my mate Kev and another mate Mick, we were all skint, you know, so we used to put in 10 shillings a week into a kitty and then once a week we could go out and buy an album and it we you know it would be one person's choice every week so we had all so we could get three times as many albums you know so that was the general idea and that lasted for a couple of years so i think kev had the most out there taste and i had the next and then mick was a bit more straight but we all had similar taste and uh Kev heard about beef art and we went down to Manzi's in Swiss Cottage and listened to Safer's Milk and then when we heard Electricity and I was like, oh fuck, this is the best thing I've ever heard, you know. And it's so yeah, we were well into beef art, you know. And Zappa, I, I never got on so well with Zappa. I've got to say, I mean, I've got freak out, I think, and we're only in it for the money. But and he's a great guitarist, but I kind of couldn't really cope with these kind of you know live stuff and the kind of rather very American humour that just didn't come across to me, you know. Yes. I never never was a great Zappa fan, you know, although I recognised that he was really good. But I did like Beefheart, you know, I thought yes. he was fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're lucky because I think the Magic, the Magic Band played, oh God, it's probably 10 years ago now or possibly in that five, 10 years, um, at the Norwich Arts Centre. And, and it was great to see so many of the original members yeah. performing and uh, including John Drumbo French who was yeah. you know, a fantastic, yeah, fantastic. front yes it was quite a nice night actually yeah so, I, I, once again I never saw Beefheart and the Magic Band although they played at a venue at the end of my street once and I didn't go for some unaccountable reason I'm not sure when I was living in Kilburn I lived I lived in a flat in Gascony Avenue with my then girlfriend and uh they were on at the Kilburn State, which was at the end of Gascony Avenue, and I got no. Probably didn't have any money. I would think that's probably the. It was the general reason I didn't do things was that I never had any money. Yes. So when you when you you did you leave school when you were about sixteen, seventeen then? No, I stayed till I did. I did my A levels. And then you left. I, and then I left. Then you <laughs> yeah, left. they won't let you stay on after that. <laughs> I just wonder if you went to university after that. But... No, I did. I, I went. And, well, at that time, my mum. I was living with my mum, and our, you know, my relationship with my mum as a, with a teenage boy and a mum. Although we were kind of close, it, it was a bit fractious, and she had some issues as well that were kind of a bit kind of traumatic at the time. You know, like suicide attempts and stuff like that. And um, so she'd met this guy Henry and. When I was 18, I kind of wanted to get my own flat. And me and my girlfriend got a flat in Kilburn, you know, pretty much as soon as I left school. And my mum then got married to Henry and moved out to Essex with him. Nice. And then was she all right? Yeah, yeah, she was okay. You know, she was always a bit... She was a bit, a bit of a handful, I think. <laughs> but, you know, I think Henry kind of... yeah. I don't know. I mean, he was a bit of a handful himself, you know. Oh, I like a happy ending, actually. This is I'm just well, ang I'm just yeah, angling you know, for a she, happy she ending. She was all right, you know. Henry died in 1990, and my mum went on till 2007, I think. So, yeah. oh, good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. She, you know, it was all right, but I, you know, I left home as soon as I could. I think that's, you know, to be honest, I think people of my age group, that's what everyone did. No one wanted to stay at home. You know, it's changed a lot. You know, most kids now don't leave home till they're 40 or something, you know. Yeah, or, I know. It's very, that is you know a very I mean? weird point. <laughs> they, they stay at home for ages, you know, whereas me and my mates, you know, we, we, wherever it was, you, you left home and lived in the shittiest flat, you know, as soon as you possibly could because it was just, you just had to, you know. Yes, I know. Mattress on the floor doesn't matter. You just it was a real, you know, the place we had in Gascony Avenue was bloody awful where I lived, you know, but on the top floor of this old Victorian house with mice running around and, yeah, it was all horrible. Toilet two stories down, you know, so you had to run down the stairs to do his shit, you know. You know. It was, yeah, it was horrible. But, but it was great as well because it was like my own flat. Yes, well, absolutely, and and when you um, you've got sort of you know, you have durability anyway, so that's absolutely fine. So when did you start sort of forming bands? Because this was going to oh, be. I had my first band when I was about fifteen, uh, with with a couple of schoolmates. I was playing guitar. Uh, my mate Ray, who I was talking about earlier, went to the Isle of Wight with him. Uh, he was on drums, 
Oh no, he wasn't. He was on, he was on bass actually. He was playing bass, and another mate of ours from school, a bloke called Bill O'Brien, who was a kind of hotshot kid drummer, became our drummer. So we we had a three-piece band, and we kind of modelled ourselves on, you know, Hendrix and Cream and Blue Cheer and stuff like that. So we were like a three-piece, fifteen-year-old three-piece, you know, and uh, yeah, we used to have to take our gear to gigs on a bus because we couldn't drive, and. Uh, yeah, we did a few shows and didn't record anything. There's no photographs of us. You know, it could have been a complete fiction of fiction in you know, my imagination entirely. But I do remember it, you know. And did you start sort of getting that, you know, seeing the, the sort of the change in, I suppose, punk coming along? Did you start to see the kind of the birth of punk? Because you must have been at yeah. the right age at that time. Yeah, well, me and I'd, I'd gone to college and I'd, I'd kind of... Well, it's a long story, really, but I kind of the girl I was living with in in Kilburn in about 1971. I I kind of ended up getting married to her, and that was a complete disaster. And by 1973, it was all finished, and I decided to go to college because I had enough qualifications to do a teacher's training, uh, not a degree, a certificate of education. So I thought I'd go to college, and I went to Weymouth College of Education. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm free. I'm a free man. And it had six girls to every guy. And I thought, all oh, right, I'm going to go down, have the time of my life, get off with every girl at college. And on the first night, I kind of went into the, you know, the freshers' ball. <laughs> and there was this really pretty girl standing there. I thought, oh, she's gorgeous. I'm going to start with her. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still married to her now. Oh, it's a My happy ending. I love a happy ending. The kind of Lothario of Weymouth kind of lasted about an hour. Yes. Because on the first night of college, I met Jan, who we've been together now since 1973, you know. Cupid. God, God that's, that's f- nearly 50 years. You're going to get you're gonna yeah. get a telegram from the Queen, I think. I'm, uh, I'll get not. a telecaster from the Queen. Yeah, it could be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, just delivered by you know. It's Prince. great. You know, we're we're still having a ball. You know, we we make each other laugh. Well, I think I make her laugh. I don't know. Well, in 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 a bad way. You know, that we're yes. we're great. We're having a we really hit it off. We <laughs> yes, I'm talking about you. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. I mean, yeah, that's, I do love a happy ending. I think it's because I've watched too many. So far. I, I just watched too many Lassie films when I was growing up. So then, <laughs> as as the band, as you all sort of band started to sort of form, because you were you went through quite a few, didn't you, before you hit? Um, I've been in loads of bands. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a guitarist, and I've been playing since you know I was seven, and I'm now 68. So, you know, I've I've had a lot of different attempts at getting things done, but you know lack of money, lack of transport, all that kind of stuff. Maybe I just wasn't dedicated enough back then. You know, a lot of kids, you know, buy good equipment on HP, learn to drive, stay at home and live with, you know, and I was paying rent from the age of 18 and, you know, I never had, you know, I just wasn't dedicated enough. I wanted to have a nice time and run around and, I thought it would come easy, but it didn't, you know. Yes, because it was a... So the Von Trapp family, that was a very short-lived affair, wasn't it? Well, it lasted about two or three years. Actually, that's quite a good one. That's quite good. But you got only, but only recorded one single. Well, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> once again, it doesn't mean we weren't together for a long time. No, just in yeah, the and studio. Besides, it was, it was Ray who I was in the first line-up. That, the, that was... The band I had when I was 15, we, I was, I was going to call it The Museum. That was my name for it. I thought, oh, that was a good name. But I had this mate in, I grew up in St. John's Wood, and I had this mate who lived opposite me who was kind of a very enigmatic guy, a real good lad. And uh, I bumped into him in the street one day, and he was, we didn't go to the same school, and he said, uh, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've got a band. And he said, oh, what's it called? And I said, The Museum. And he went, hmm, not bad. And he said, you ought to call it Bevis Frond. Oh. I went, what? what's that? And he said, it's just a name. I thought, oh, it's a really good name for a group. And I went, oh, yeah. So I called the first band when I was 15, I called it the Bevis Frond Museum. And that, and that was my, this mate of mine's idea, who, was, who went on to be a famous filmmaker, actually. Excellent. So, there you go. There's a bloke called Julian Temple. Julian Temple, the man. Yeah, my he God. up the name. There you go. I'm, I'm sort of... I haven't seen Julian, I mean, probably 50 years, I would think. Yeah. I think the last time I saw Julian was at his brother's funeral, actually. 
Jin Temple. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, not many people are going to know that fact, are they? They're going to. <laughs> it's <laughs> not a secret, you know. I mean, it's it's out there it's now. What you know, and he he was he was a kind of good guy. Like, yeah, we were good mates back then. You know, when we were kids, and. But, you know, when you kind of leave home and go your separate ways, we just kind of lost contact, really. There was no significant issue or anything. He just he just went his way and I went mine, and our paths haven't crossed since, really. No. Well, these things happen. They will eventually, because someone will say... Maybe. I don't know. I met his sister once. Yes. Sylvia. And she, did she remember you? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I don't know. You might not have met her. I don't no, know. No, we were, we were... No, Sylvia... Well, I met her because she was going out with... Someone else I knew, just coincidentally, a mate that I knew was going out with Sylvia Temple. So I kind of went, oh, bloody hell. You know, we went out for dinner together and it was like my my wife and me and Stuart and Sylvia, you know. We got like, oh, blimey, you know. So that was nice. I caught up with her a bit, you know. So that yes. was a brief kind of, you know, reunion, but only for once, you know. That was yeah. nice, though. So when, you know, because cause we had the sort of the punk period, which lasted a few years and, you know, like yeah. with any scene, it kind of ends up, you know, you think, oh, this is getting dreadful, I must leave now. And then that little bit of a post-punk world of people like Gang of Forum magazine and then... Yeah, I thought that was great. I really liked that. And you, you sort of, your next release was as Room 13, didn't you? Well, basically that was really the Von Trapp family. We, we, we'd had a, we got the Von Trapp family and, you know, like it's one of these things where you... You put all your effort into it. You do loads and loads of gigs. You're, you're seen by loads of record companies. You kind of had people from a and R men coming and to our gigs. At all, we were playing all around London in the late seventies, and you know, at the, you know places like you know the Rock Garden and the Dublin Castle and the you know uh, Moonlight Club, which was the Klux Clique thing, and uh, you know loads of we played everywhere. You know, around London and few just a few out of London, and we had. Uh, lot of interest we played on peel and stuff and we had kind of a and r men from ireland and virgin and a and r come to see us and it but nothing happened you know we kind of did everything we could you know but you know we didn't get signed you know we must have been the only band in that era not to get signed you know we must have been really shit you know <laughs> Yes, it was, um, yes, because the birth of indie, you know, was kind of just about bubbling under, and then sort of eighty. 80- it was kind of, yeah. We well, in the end, you know, the Von Trapp family put their like so many bands around, then we put our own single out. You know, we Waronzo being a name of a street around the corner from where we all grew to, grew up. Yes, because the Von Trapps was all a bunch of mates. You know, it was me. What had happened is that I'd gone down to see the Lurkers at the Hope and Anchor with my mates Kev and Mark. Yeah, and we were watching them, and I've got to say they weren't great. And uh, I remember they were saying we went for a drink afterwards, and Kev would kind of said, "Oh, if I could play guitar like you, I'd get a band going. It's, it'd be brilliant." And I said, "Well, why don't we do it then? Because Mark could play a bit, and he he played bass. Kev became the singer, and my old mate Ray, who had been the bass player in the first Bevis Rond, fancied being a drummer, so he became the drummer." And that was the Von Trapp family. It was kind of a bunch of old mates who'd known each other since we were about a ten, you know. Yes, there you go. But then you had your Anna Cerebralis, didn't you? you had... Oh, that wasn't good, yeah. Was that 83? Yeah, I, was, I was playing football, I drove home on my motorbike and my motorbike went down a hole in the road and I went flying over the handlebars, got my elbow caught in some park railings and, <gasps> you know, smashed my elbow to pieces and cut my head open, cut my... Toes, cut my feet, cut my chest. But you know, I was a right mess. You know, and uh, ended up in the hospital for about uh, well, I don't know, a couple of months. I think you know, no, all through the summer. So there you go. Was that a pothole? Yeah, it was. It, it, it took us years to because it was it was it was a hole in the road that they'd been dug, and it was weird because they'd filled it in, but. So it was like parallel with the pavement, you know, so it was long ways, really. It wasn't going across the road. It was going along the road. And the end that I was driving along was on the level with the road. But as as it got further along, it had sunk into the road. So I was just driving along at night, coming home from playing football. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm flying through the air because the bike had, it was like sunk about 18 inches. And the bike hit the end of the bit where it sunk and, just came to a halt and I kind of flew over the handlebars, you know, and the bike was a write-off and yeah, that was that really. 
Blimey, that must have been horrendous. Did you have... Um... It wasn't nice, no. I, I, I didn't know what I'd done. You know, I, was, I remember lying on the pavement thinking, oh, jeez, this isn't good. And I was thinking, I could feel stuff in my mouth, and I thought I'd broken all my teeth. And I remember feeling my teeth and going, no, no, you've still got your teeth. And then I looked, I thought, well, I bet I've broken my legs. And I looked, and my legs seemed all right. And then I thought, I bet you've broken your arm. And I looked around, and my left arm was kind of, where your elbow does a kind of L shape, it was doing an L shape the wrong way. Oh, and I thought, oh, God. But I remember actually lying on the pavement thinking, oh, well, you've only broken your arm, you could have died. And I actually remember thinking that. And, you know, then the kind of ambulance came and took me off, and it was, you know, at the time, you know, you, you don't really realise what's happened, but it was a lot worse than I'd realised. And, you know, so I was lumbered for a... About a year, I was out of action. You know. Yes. So, did you? Is this right that you got damages for that? And that's I what did you... after three years, because it was the. Oh, I can't even remember who it was, but they, they, they said it was first. They, they said, oh, it's Camden Council. It's their fault. But Camden Council said no, it's the Water Board that dug the, and the Water Board said it was the Electricity Board, and the Electricity Board said it was Camden, and it just kept going round and round and round in circles. And I had a solicitor working on it, you know, pro bono, really. And they'd uh, they found out in the end that there was a, they'd gone knocking door to door, and they found a guy who was an, an, a solicitor, another solicitor, who'd written a complaining letter to Camden Council about a week before I'd had my accident, saying there's a terrible pothole in the road and someone is going to come a cropper on it, and they'd ignored it, and he he had still had a copy of the letter. <laughs> And so when, as soon as they found this, and it turned out it was Camden Council's fault, they uh, started offering money, you know. Right, and there you go. And that's where you got your recording equipment. Yeah, well, partly. I paid off all the debts, because me and my wife had just bought a house at the time, and we were paying a mortgage, and, you know, immediately, you know, I can't do a job. You know, I, I was working with the GLC at the time. And, uh, you know, we had no income, and... It was yeah, it was a bit a bit difficult. You know, Jan was paying for everything out of her teacher's wages, and uh, we've you know accrued some debt, and you know, so I actually I remember I was at home and there was a, the letters came and I went to the door and one was a, one of those horrible brown envelopes that you kind of go oh god what's this, and it was a summons for non-payment of rates, and I opened the other letter and it was a cheque for twelve grand. Swings and roundabouts, my God. And I was kind of like, woo! That, and, yeah, so, and you know, that was the first instalment. I got quite a bit of money from Camden Council. But, you know, but then again, I'm sitting here with a knackered arm, age 68, you know. I haven't been able to go swimming or do press-ups since I was, like, you know, 20-something. You know? Yes, well, no, you wouldn't really swap it, So, would I'd, you? you know, I'd rather have a, a fully functioning elbow than than some money, you know. Yes, absolutely. So then, sort of, as the 80s progressed, is this when you, after the re recovery, is this when you started getting kind of much more serious with the band? No, no, not at all, really. Um, the band kind of broke up. When I did my arm in the kind of... Because, basically, I was the driving force behind the band, you know. I mean, the other guys all did their stuff, but without me, who you know, wrote all the songs you know, and did all the kind of stuff. Uh, they kind of, it just kind of fizzled out, really. Uh, and when I was fit again, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh, I don't know whether this is worth the bother, you know, with doing a band again, you know, because I never really enjoyed playing live. I've never, I've never been a fan of playing live. I mean, I know I'd do it, but, you know, I'm much happier writing a song or recording, you know. And um, I, I didn't know. I, I don't know. I got, I got some, you know, from my compensation, I had some money to get a... Uh, you know, minimum, when I paid off the debts and we'd had a holiday and I bought a car, we had a little bit of money over, so I bought a porter studio and started recording stuff and I bought a drum kit for 30 quid and started learning how to play drums and I could play bass and a bit of keyboard. So, you know, I started recording stuff and after I'd done a bit of recording, I kind of thought, well, that's kind of good, you know. And I thought maybe I should press it up into an album, you know, so that... You know, in 30 years' time, I could have a record of what I'd been doing all my life because I'd, you know, up to that point, I was what well, I appeared on one album in the 70s as a bass player. And I was on a single and a 12 inch single, and that was my entire output. So I thought, no, I'll do an album of what I'm about. And then I, you know, in 
40 years' time, I can give it to my very disinterested grandchildren. You know, that was my basic idea. <laughs> and it was yes. a kind of vanity project completely, you know. Um, so, which is why Miasma, which is what it became, has a bit of everything on it. It had a bit of folk and a bit of rock and a bit of psych and a bit of pop, you know, because I was trying to show a bit of everything, you know. And I had no idea that it was ever going to take off in any way at all. So it was a complete surprise when it did, you know. Yes, and that record label then is your own, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. God, Sherlock Holmes, here I am. But yes, right. <laughs> so we set up a record label. Did that, was, were you just kind of, actually sod it, I'm, no one's going to sign it, so I'm just going to do it and see how well, it Well, yeah, goes. exactly. It was, it was out of necessity, you know. I mean, we, we tried till our kind of feet were worn down and going walking around record companies and be, you know, the t- you, way you got treated back then, you know, you get someone saying, come to see me at Island Records, you know, some bloke, you know, kind of Mick Richardson, you've got to meet me, uh, come to Island Records at St. Peter's Square in Hammersmith at midday on Tuesday, so me and Kev take the day off work, you know, go down all excited to St. Peter's Square, go in to Island Records, go, hi, we've got an appointment with Mick Richardson, I mean, I'm just making a name up, it could yes. anyone. And she goes, oh, Mick, uh, there's Nick and Kev from the Von Trapp family here. And she says, he, he says he'll be down in five minutes. So you sit down and an hour later, you go up and say, is he ever coming down? And she phones him again. And he says, always oh, sorry, he got tied up in something. He's coming down now. And you wait another hour and then you go home, you know. Yeah, that is a bit tedious. And you never even see him, you know. That is tedious, isn't it? But you then know, it happened, that happened at Virgin... It happened at A&M. I, got, I lost my temper at A&M. I stormed out in a rage, you know. Yes. Because we were being treated like absolute idiots by this fucking idiot who, you know, who asked us to come and see him, you know. I know. That is weird, isn't and it? And then didn't want to know. And then was, we played him a track. I seemed to, And he said, he said, he's talked on the phone all the way through it. And at the end of it, he hung up, you know, and then took the cassette out of the machine and went, oh, it's a bit too long. And we said, what do you mean it's a bit too long? You were on the phone all the way through it. And he said, yeah, but I was on the phone for about five minutes, so it's too long. Mm, you did well At not to punch point, him. I kind of lost the temper. The other guys were going, oh, we've got shorter songs. We've got shorter songs. And I said, well, you can fucking stay here and play him short songs if you want. I'm fucking going on. This cunt's not interested in signing us, you know. And I stormed out in a rage and it was snowing. I remember I got outside in my T-shirt and I'd left my jacket in the van. <laughs> Could have been oh, worse. You could have left oh, it in the office. No, I thought, I'm not going back in again, going, can I have the keys to the van? So I thought, I'll just go home on the train, you know. So I, I walked to Parsons Green Tube Station, because A&M were in Fulham Palace Road. And I went up to Parsons Green Tube Station, and all my money was in my jacket. And yes. I thought, you're joking. I'm going to have to walk. It was snowing, and I was wearing a T-shirt, and I thought, I'm going to have to walk to Hampstead, which is where I was living at the time. And I walked to Hampstead in the snow in a T-shirt. I thought from, you know, the end of King's Road. And I thought, oh, God almighty. I was, I'm walking down King's Road in the snow and the van pulled up beside me. And they said, right, you calm down yet? And I went, yes. I <laughs> got in the van. But that was, you know, that's what it was like. So, yeah, it was complete necessity that we, you know, formed our own label. And then, the, and then when I did the first Bevis album... I was the only one who was still doing music, so I had the name and the label, so I just used the label. You know? Yes. Your output has been phenomenal, hasn't it? I mean, it My has... what? Your, your, the, the, the amount of releases and output has been... Absolute... Well, you know, I've been doing it for, what, you know, 35 years. So, you know, it's, it's, if, you, if you've been continually putting out records for 35 years... You you know it's going to be quite a lot, I guess. It is, but but um, you know. The... <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, one hopes it's not just the quantity that's why people like what I'm doing. You know? No, well, absolutely not. But um, no, just I mean, most people have a little bit of kind of a honeymoon period and then they drop it. But you you obviously didn't. You you, you haven't had that experience. You just I have. I, in in 2004, I stopped making records for seven years. Oh, after the Hit Squad. Yeah, that was my last one for ages. I, I came back from a tour. We'd done a tour of Europe, and I was, I was getting jaded and bored with it. You know, I was thinking, oh, fuck, you know, we just go around Europe, see, play the same places to the same people. I seemed to be writing the same song over and over again, and it, I was just getting bored with it. And I thought, oh, I think I need a break from this. You know, I've been doing it kind of solidly for about 15 years. 
and I thought I need a, a bit of a sabbatical, you know. So, you know, the other guys in the band were okay with it because I just said, well, look, you know, I'm going to take a bit of time out just to get my head together, and um, it just took a bit longer than I was. Well, my mum started dying, and she she was dying of cancer, and I kind of was seeing her every day and making sure she was okay and you know and it, things are then when she died we moved out of London and you know and I hadn't done a gig or any records for ages and then about 2011 or something I thought mm, maybe it'd be a good idea to try and do something again and I genuinely didn't know whether anyone would still be interested you know they might just go oh fuck obviously old sod and uh yeah, started did it and it was okay, you know, people liked it, and so I've been continuing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The al- well, I was, you know, because you're, you're sort of, apart from the albums, you've also set up a download, haven't you? you? You sort of were getting your material sort of out there to a lot a bigger audience or a larger audience. Well, that wasn't me. That was my mate Mark, Mark Burgess set up the download, you know, the band camp thing. That was all him. I, I'm not technically minded and I couldn't give a shit about it, you know, so... He, he said, oh, you've got to do it because he's like that. So I said, well, if you want to do it for me, you can have half the money. So he did it for me and he has half the money. Well, nice. That's nice. And then, so then how did you, how did Fire Records sort of come into your well, aura? Well, about, I don't know, about 2012, something like that, 13, something around that time, uh, Cherry Red got in touch with me and wanted to do a kind of deal with me to reissue all my old albums. And, you know, I went and met them. And I'm a bit cagey because I don't like record companies very much. You know, they're all, all much of a muchness. And, uh, you know, they were they said all the right things and they were very kind of complimentary and said, oh, we'll give you this. And I thought, well, if they give me reasonable, I'm, I'm not going to reissue them myself. So, I mean, if you want to give me some money, then fine, you know. So they they did it and I got some money and signed a deal with them and, it was it wasn't too complicated. They had a kind of five year license, each one starting from when they reissued it, and then they had a kind of period by which they had to reissue it because otherwise they could have had it forever, you know. And um, they started off okay, and then after about they'd reissued about five or something like that, and they stopped talking to me, you know. I got in touch with them and said, right, because I was like helping out, you know, doing a bit of artwork, sending them a couple of tracks that were, you know, hadn't been used at the time. And I got in touch with them and they didn't want to know, you know. And I thought, what's going on? This is weird. And the next thing I know, they've kind of decided that they don't want to continue with it. And I, I said, yeah, well, why? And they said, well, it's not selling enough copies to make it worth our while. So I went, oh, all right, fine. Well, I'll, in that case, you've broken the contract and I'll go. I got all my rights back, you know, because they should have released the next album by a certain date and they hadn't done it. So, right. You know, so that was that was done. And, and I thought, well, you know, who cares? i got a bit of money, you know. I can, I've got the stuff back so I can offer it to someone else at a later date. But in the intervening period when I was still kind of very pissed off, actually, I was thinking, you bastards, you know, you put me through all this fucking shit. I didn't want to sign with you, really, in the first place, and I did it for the dough, and then you dumped me, you know. Um, well, then Cherry, uh, uh, then Fire got in touch with me and said uh, they'd like to take over the deal, you know, and they'd spoken to Cherry Red, and Cherry Red were happy to pass me over, you know, like, a, <laughs> you know, like a, the bad penny, you know. And, um, and I kind of met up with them, and initially I just said, no, I'm not interested, you know, And but they kept on blathering away, and I kept getting... I even got to the stage when I was emailing and saying, will you stop emailing me, because I'm not fucking interested, I don't want to sign with you, you're all the same, and I'd rather not be bothered with you, you know. But they kept on going, and they kept on going, and in the end I thought, oh, what the fuck, you know, what have I got to lose, you know, an afternoon sitting with them, t- hearing what they've got to offer. And in the end I thought, oh, you know what, what's... But- a bit of money, you know, might as well take it. So I did, and much to my amazement, they've been really nice and really good and supportive and treated me for the first time ever, a record company who's treated me with a bit of respect, you know, and it's been quite an unnerving experience. <laughs> waiting for the kind of, oh, yes. I am waiting for the anvil to drop on my head, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, so far it's remained... Hovering, you know. No, that's quite... so. Does that mean they've they've now got your back catalogue as well, or did they just say they've got my back catalogue? Yeah, they did a deal for the back catalogue, and and then because that was going 
quite well. And here's the really weird thing, that about a year ago, I started receiving royalty checks from Cherry Red, which means that my advance had been paid off and it was earning money. So for an act that wasn't selling enough to make it worth their while, we're now obviously quite substantially in profit on that. So go figure. That is go figure. I mean, it is a bit strange. Isn't that weird? It is, um, because a couple of months ago I did an interview with the the drummer from the Glitter Band, and I I remember thinking... That can't be a big selling album, really, the Glitter Band's album. You know, you if you're going to listen to it, you're going to want to hear Gary Glitter and the, the Glitter Band, really, aren't you? <laughs> I don't, you know, I just was thinking, you know, he's a lovely guy, by the way, a nice drummer and all that, and nice guy. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm not a business person, but I thought, I just can't imagine many people buying this album. But, you know, hey-ho, well done, Cherry Red, for wanting to put it out. But I thought... Well, Cherry Red uh, now changed their whole approach now. They kind of... Uh... They don't do licensing deals. They just buy your catalogue. Oh, right. That's that's what they're doing now because they approached a mate of mine who's got a band and they weren't interested in doing a license deal. They they said, look, we want to do your back catalogue, but we want to buy your catalogue, so it's ours. Yes. Okay. And if you want to, you know, if you don't want us to, if you want to own your own catalogue, then we're not interested. We yes. want to buy every, you know, so... They've changed that, and they're not. Apparently, that's all they're doing now. They're not offering license deals anymore. They're just buying your back catalogue. Nice. Well, I don't know if it's nice, but anyway, it's good that you got a royalty check. And hey ho, I got a royalty. I get. I've had several. You know, it keep, they keep coming in now, and I think, well, I thought I wasn't selling enough records to make it worth your while. You know. And that was just. Was that your first five albums that they just released? Uh, yeah, it must be the first five. Yeah, I think it was about that. My God, they should have... It's, it's really weird. It's, it, it doesn't make any sense because I got... You know, when, when I signed for Fire, they had all the sales figures, you know, because they're like record labels and they can get this kind of thing. And they were looking at the sales figures and going, well, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, the sales figures are healthy. Which yes. I think was half the reason they were happy to take over, you know. Yeah. So I've got absolutely no idea why they didn't want to continue with it. Maybe they just hated me, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. Thank you to just say, yeah. So then, when you did your album, was this, and this is a new album, isn't it, of material? Which one? The the latest one, the one on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did, because the production is kind of quite zingy, isn't it? Where where did you record that, or was this in your... Oh, my mate's got a studio down the road in, I, I live in Hastings, and he's got a studio at the back of Bexhill, and um, because I was doing it alone, I'm, well, well, he's got a little control room and a separate recording room, you know, a separate room where you do a live room. And I was initially, while I was while lockdown was happening, I did a lot of songwriting. I mean, you know, you're sitting around doing nothing really. So I was kind of, I did a lot of songwriting. I had a load of songs. I had a load of material, and I thought, oh yeah, this is good stuff, you know, good enough for a new album. And I thought I'll go into Dave's studio because I can do that quite safely, because it's only me on my own, and he's in another room anyhow. So I went in to lay down what I thought were going to be demos. You know, I was going to record some demos so that when lockdown was all over, I could give it to the guys in the band, and we could go in and do them, you know? And that was the idea. But I got about half a dozen demos done, and I thought, well, these sound fine. You know, the, why Why do I don't really need to do these again. You know, they... They sound perfectly all right, you know. I've always been a bit worried about my drumming, you know, because I think I'm not really a drummer, you know. And I listened to the drumming on it, and I thought, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with it, you know. And I played it to Adrian, sent him a copy, you know, and said, what do you think? And he's, he was going, well, fine, you don't, need to, you don't need us to do it. It's done, you know. So I kind of went, oh, right, saved myself a load of dough and time. So I just continued recording what had initially started as demos and it turned into the latest album which is so it's just me on my own except for one track in which i used a proper drummer because it was a bit too complicated yes there was one track that honestly i tried it and it sounded like someone pushing a cupboard down a staircase you know it was it was awful so i thought no i've got i've got a mate down in in bexhill and i just said to him look can you pop up and play drums on this track and he said yeah sure and came up and did a great job much better than I could have done, you know. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're basically like the English version of Prince, aren't you, on this, version, this kind of well, time of life? I think that's where the similarities end. 
<laughs> I don't know, you played everything, which is, you know... In, well, in yeah, but that's about it. So did Emmett Rhodes. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> I think I've got a lot more in common with Emmett Rhodes than Prince. <laughs> but not a lot... No. And they're both dead, as well, I hasten to add. Oh, dear. No, that's not good. But who is Mary Lou Lord? Because she does... Who, who is she? Not who is she, but how did you? How did she come into your life? You know? she, well, back in the 90s, I, I, she got in touch with me because she was uh, recording some stuff for a label in, uh, the, in the New England area uh, called Kill Rock Stars, and uh, she wanted to cover one of my songs. And she got in touch with me and said, do you mind if I cover one of your songs? And I went, no, of course not. Go ahead, you know, knock yourself out. Yes. And uh, she kind of corresponded with me a bit and sent me a copy of what she'd done, which was very nice. And and then she came and played at the Water Rats in King's Cross. And she told me, oh, I'm in England, I'm playing at the Water Rats. And so I went down to the Water Rats with Jan and we went and saw Mary Lou and... She was great, and we became kind of friends, and she was very helpful, you know, in America. She was kind of singing my praises unreservedly in the States and, you know, probably helped, you know, me get a bit more profile in the States because uh, she was at the time, you know, quite a hot property, and she did a kind of deal with Sony eventually, and unfortunately that, it didn't really take off for her, you know. No, but anyway, you know. But she's still making records and she's really good and she's a lovely person, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because I noticed on your Spotify you have over six, nearly 6,000 listeners a month and nearly 4,000 followers. So you obviously have, over the, over the period, have, have gained a huge kind of dedicated fan base. Yeah, people kind of, well, you know, I mean, that's, you know, I hasten to say, you know, I, I don't want to sound conceited, but I'm kind of quite good, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I am. Anyhow, I think everyone who, having said that, I think every musician who goes out there thinks they're quite good. So, you know, or else what are you doing, you know? So, yes, I, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite confident with my abilities. I don't think I'm putting out shit, you know. So, you know, and I, you know, there's a kind of certain club-like thing because I've never really been mainstream you know I've never appeared on British television I've only done what in my whole time two British radio sessions you know it's all been very under the radar uh, I've, in the UK I haven't done a lot of touring um, and it's it's kind of almost like a little kind of cult band thing you know and you know, I think the people who've always stuck with me kind of feel like they're part of a little kind of club, you know. The, and and it's, it's the case, you know, without without their kind of dedication, you know, my, my career as a working musician probably would have finished decades ago, you know. Yes. But they've kept it going, you know. With And I think that that's the thing, you know, that it hasn't ever become mainstream. And, you know, I've always had quite nice things written about me, you know, but no record labels wanted to take me on and no... TV shows want to put me on and no radio stations want to put me on and no, you know, I've had a few things written about me, but not much, you know, no, no major coverage in any of the major papers, you know, it's all a bit under the radar, you know, Mojo and Shindig and things like that have written a bit, but not much, no. you know, and it's, it's kind of weird, you know, it seems to be one of these enduring cult things, you know, that, you know, keeps on going, you know somehow you know nearly 70 years old and people are still getting excited about what i'm doing you know which is, seems ridiculous to me but i kind of feel more like the bb king of music that you know or someone ancient old crone you know putting out fucking terrible music but i think it's still kind of or i think i'll know when it's shit you know yes well absolutely i think i'll listen to it and go you know what this is the time to stop you know same thing as as i think i know when to stop playing football you know i stopped about 18 months ago. Oh, blimey. I, 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 well, I stopped playing proper football 18 months ago because I fell over and broke my elbow again. Oh. Same elbow. Yes. And I thought, you know what? Perhaps that's a message. I'm not going to get that, to 70 playing football. A silly old fool running about with people half his age and then falls over and snaps his elbow and I thought, no, I think, I think I'm being told something. And it, I was finding it very hard work as well, playing against people of about 28 and 30, you know. When I was in my mid-60s, you know, 
I remember driving home from playing football through the Blackwall Tunnel and getting cramp in my foot. <laughs> and that's not a good place to get cramp in your no, foot. No, it's not a good place at all. Halfway through the Blackwall Tunnel. So what position did you play in, at, the, at the age When of... I played football, I used to play up front. Right. Nippy inside forward, nice. goal scorer, you know. That was, that was my preferred position. Now I'm afraid I just play old gits football down in Hastings. I, play, you know, I still turn out once a week and play with a bunch of... Strangely enough, I thought playing with the old folk and doing walking football, which is, I thought I swore I would never do, but actually have ended up doing it, which isn't really walking, it's kind of jogging football. But playing with a bunch of old gits, I thought, well, this will be nice and easy. But of course, what it turns out is that I'm still one of the oldest. Yes. Because they're, they're all about 58 and 60 and stuff like that. So I've got 10 years on most of them. So it's still fucking hard work. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is everyone's a bit slower, so there's probably people catching themselves. They are in. slower. I'll, I'll give them, and of course, you can't go fast because if you do, you get penalised for running. You know, which yes. I'm consistently getting penalised. I got, actually got sent off recently Ooh. for arguing with the referee. Can no, you believe it? No, that I, is... I lost my temper so badly that I stormed off and said, "I'm never coming back." In a, a bit, rage. A bit through jam. my through my gaily coloured bib in his face. <laughs> <laughs> Dear me, so you go a dignified exit by a sixty-seven-year-old. You know? Yes. So, how did you find you know the last year? I mean, obviously, you know, being in the position where you've retired, you probably I haven't retired. What do you mean what? I'm retired? Well, no, but you know, a lot of people. I run st- a record shop. I run a record label. I'm a working musician. Oh, I've I've never been so busy in my life. Yes. So, so actually, last year was was actually just as busy as ever. Last year was. Yeah, you know, obviously everyone was going through lockdown, but you know, you 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 know, you get through it, don't you? You know, you just have to kind of deal with it. You know? Yes. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go mental and start crying or something and getting worried. You know, what the hell? You know, it's it's not as bad as a war, is it? No. It's an international crisis. You know, it's better than having someone bombing you. Well, absolutely. No. But... You know, so you know, you just got to kind of face up to it and go, well, deal with it. We'll get through it and. You know, eventually we will, you know. Absolutely. So what does that mean for the, hopefully for the future, after Freedom Day has been and gone? What's what's next on your agenda? Well, I've got another year in my record shop. I've, my lease runs out in a year's time. And How I long have you had I've, the record shop, by the way? Um, I've, I've been doing a second-hand record shop for about ten years. Right. But the particular shop I'm in now is five years. It's a five-year lease, and I've been there four years. And at the end of it, I'm going to be knocking 70, and I think, do I really want to spend another five years sitting in a record shop and running around trying to buy rare vinyl? And I thought, you know what, I like doing it. It makes money, but sod that. I've got more important things to do, you know? Yes. Um, So, yeah, I've got another year of that. Um, As regards music, I mean, I certainly intend to keep writing and playing. Um, I've... Got starting up a record label, but I'm not, it's not going to be Waronzo because Waronzo was partly Adrian's eventually became part of his, and he's not in a position to continue doing it at the moment. So, out of deference to Aid, I thought I'd change the name. So, I'm starting a new label called Blue Matter, but and that you know, that's supposed to coincide with my shop ending so that when I've finished in the record shop, I've got something interesting to do, you know, which would be have a little record label putting out some nice stuff, you know? Yes, absolutely. But and as far as gigging goes, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's it's a bit of a kind of moot point, isn't it? Because you've got uh, the double whammy of COVID and Brexit, <laughs> yes. you know, and uh, COVID, you know, even though they're saying it's Freedom Day, you can do what you like, I still don't feel particularly comfortable about mingling with hordes of bevis-hungry, you know, octogenarians. No, so, I don't... Um, and I don't know, I, I, and apart, you know, a lot of the work we've got is in Europe, you know, we we do very well in Europe, and, you know, thanks to the great British public, we now can't fucking do it, because they managed to fuck that all up for us, you know. Even people like Roger Daltrey, who was a Mr Brexit, is now moaning about it. Yes. Oh, we can't play in Europe, says Brexiteering idiot Roger Daltrey, you know. 
Yeah, I think the um, shoot, shooting oneself in the foot there. Yeah, because I know, because quite a few bands I've spoke to relied on the European tour, which is basically... Well, the... I don't rely on it because I'm not that bothered about touring. You know, I, I, I do it because I feel I owe it to the people who buy me records. You know, it's, it's not something I'm gagging for. No. And, you know, over the, over the decades I've been doing it, the return is, is you know comparatively less you know you're still getting paid a kind of reasonable amount but the costs of putting a tour together have gone up and up and you know now with brexit you know even if you can do it you know you've got to pay for a car now you've got extra this you know and i guarantee you for the first year or two the europeans are going to be making it as difficult as possible for the you know british i would think you know i did the uh, i went over to the utrecht record fair the, in 2019, and they'd already started making it difficult, you know. Right. So that is. So um... you know, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's you know, it's a time when you, I don't, you know, I've always been a very, very proud to be British. I love British culture. I love all everything about it. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, you know. But recently, it's it, I've been very disheartened by the kind of stance we've taken. It's made us look like a bunch of you know morons. I think basically. Yes. You know, as as a a horrible, corrupt government panders to people who shouldn't be pandered to. Yes. Well, well, going back to, yes, the, the thing about touring, I know a few bands who rely on playing almost like 30 dates in... 30 days in Europe, you know, because they yeah. know that there's a passionate audience, there's the merchandise yeah. and there's the CD sales. And even though they're in their 60s and 70s, they think we still need to just suck it and see and, and get in the van and go and do it and realise that they could just about make it all happen and then sort of make, you know, keep both the band going, the record sales and have a little bit of money to think well, that might yeah. pay for a few other bits and pieces that we desperately need so I think they, they probably are thinking well, like a lot of people who have a certain age think well we might knock that on the head now because it's just too much of a headache. Well, you know, I'd love to I'd love to go back. I mean, we we had to turn down a load of gigs. You know, I mean, I'm still getting people asking me to do gigs in Europe, and I can't do them. You know, simple as that, really. You know, and it's you know, I was speaking to Fire. I'm Fire aren't my agent. They don't they don't get me gigs. Fire. You know, I've got an agent in Germany that who gets all the gigs in Europe for us, and um, Fire do act as an agent for some of their bands. You know, they kind of put tours together in Europe and stuff. And at the moment. You know, I spoke to James, who runs Fire. He's not organising tours in Europe for anyone because yes. it's not worth the bother. You know, sad. So sad. at the time, for the time, I'm sure it will rectify itself eventually. You know, because you know the, the the demand is there and the money's there, and in the end, you know, economics will speak. You know, and something will have to be done about it. You know, but as someone pointed out, and I can't remember who it was, I think it was Elton John pointed out, he said that, uh, you know, that all the fuss that has been about the fishing industry and the fishing industry earns about a 20th of the kind of live music business, you know, yes. and they've completely kicked live music in the nuts, you know. Oh, and they still kick the fishing in the nuts as well, but, you know, but the fuss that has been about fishing and there's been hardly any fuss about bands playing a in, you know, that you, we can't have European bands to Britain and we can't play in Europe, and it's ridiculous. You know, yes. Why? What for? What's the reason? No reason at all. You know, I don't get it. Crazy stuff. But just l almost on the last point, I mean, if you were able to tell, have told yourself, your 18-year-old or 16-year-old self, you know, a bit of advice from from your sort of the decades of experience and wisdom. Is there any? Is there, are there any top tips that you'd have like a couple yeah, of bullet points? Yeah, I definitely would tell my eighteen-year-old self not to try to do what you thought people wanted. Definitely do what you want to do. Because it took me till I was in my mid-thirties to get anywhere. And the first time I got anywhere was when I did what I really wanted to do instead of kind of thinking, oh, this is, this is what's cool at the moment. I better stick in a bit of white reggae and sound a bit like a bad version of the police or something like that, you know? Right. Which is what, you know, what I think most people do. They hear what's going on and they kind of think, oh, I better do something that's going to be popular and that's what, make, what record companies will be looking for. And, of course, you know, 
I would tell myself, you know, that if you'd have realised that as soon as you did your own thing in 1986, it got noticed, and everything you did before that didn't get noticed, you know. Right. So, so that would be one that I'd tell myself. Otherwise, I'd just say, don't listen to anyone, don't take any notice, do what you want to do, and tell them all to piss off, basically. Keep on. What I've spent my life doing anyhow. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive uh, thanks to Nick to um, forgive me the time for that interview. This has been David East the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Do the C86 Show. We'll just put that into the search engine. Keep it positive and lovely. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, I've been archiving all these interviews for years, and there are hundreds of them. But you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Pod beam. I know, dramatic pause. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. Enjoy the summer. <laughs>